This is the World War II Radio Podcast. A date which will live in infamy. This is London. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Go ahead, Berlin. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Welcome to the World War II Radio Podcast. Today's episode consists of two segments, both originally broadcast in August 1942. The first is a CBS special report on Boeing winning a special War Department award for its work to build flying fortresses for the war effort. It appears to have aired sometime around August 15th. The second is a University of Texas broadcast Pathfinders of the Sky, which also aired this month in 1942, the exact date unknown. The World War II Radio Podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production. If you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And be sure to visit our website at brickpicklemedia.com slash podcast, where you can find links to past episodes, as well as the books featured in our podcasts. So thanks for listening. Enjoy today's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It's called the guts and backbone of our worldwide aerial offensive. This is Art Lindsay speaking from that part of the USA where we can't tell you how many flying fortresses are rolling out of the Boeing plant and then winging their way to the battlefronts of the world. We can tell you that production here has been more than doubled since December 7th, and that's why today the highest honor that can be awarded a war production firm goes to the Boeing Aircraft Company, the first joint Army-Navy production e-award to any firm in the aircraft industry. That's why we are here for CBS this afternoon. I am speaking to you from just outside the Boeing plant in Seattle. We want you to hear something about the production that's going on here. We want you to hear from a man who knows what the Boeing Flying Fortress is doing to win this worldwide war. And before we're through, we want you to hear by shortwave, direct from a flying fortress 30,000 feet over Seattle, so high you can't see it. But first, listen to something else. Believe me, is one little item that makes the Boeing bomber a flying fortress in something more than name. Those are the guns that have knocked so many Japanese planes out of the air that Radio Tokyo announced, quote, the American Boeing B-17 is a four-engine pursuit plane used for all purposes and proved to be very effective. End of quotation. Notice that word pursuit. That's what the Japs think of the flying fortress. Not only can it bomb the daylights out of Jap ships all over the Pacific, 
It can also fight off attacking planes without the aid of pursuit ships. This plane you've been hearing has brothers and uncles and cousins by the dozens all over the world. And so far as the number goes, I speak with considerable restraint. These planes have been over Germany, above anti-aircraft fire, above fighter planes, clear out of sight, dropping bombs that seem to come right out of the blue. These planes were in the Battle of Midway, smashing three Jap aircraft carriers and a cruiser, and shooting down eight Jap planes without a single loss to themselves. These planes have been over the Philippines, the Netherlands East Indies, Burma, and the Macassar Strait, landing the hardest blows that have yet hit the chin of the Japanese. But the reason for the Joint Army-Navy Production Award today is production. Production spelled in capital letters, in neon. Here in Seattle, Boeing workers on the home front are also displaying an effort far above and beyond the call of duty. Perhaps you'd like to meet a man who has played a part in winning today's award for Boeing. All right, here's Roland Walker. Works in the Boeing cable shop. A year ago, he was wrapping tape around flexible tubing, taped about 40 lengths a day. Too slow for Roland, he made himself a machine with which he could tape 400 lengths a day. Not that Roland Walker's story is unusual, not at all. Thousands of Boeing workers have used their own ingenuity to speed production of flying fortresses. Boeing had a working system for employee production suggestions even before Donald Nelson urged the plan for all war industries. Roland Walker here is just one of thousands who today are sharing the honor of the Army-Navy Award. He, like all the others, gets his biggest thrill when those flying fortresses go out and hit the enemy where it will do the most good. Roland Walker, this is Colonel Eugene L. Eubank, who has just recently returned from the Pacific War area. He was head of the United States Bomber Command in the Philippines and the Netherlands East Indies. Colonel Eubank, this is the first time I've had a chance to talk with a man who has flown our planes in this war. First of all, we here at Boeing's want to get us straight to the fighting front. How does the Flying Fortress look when it's in the real fight? Mr. Walker, the Flying Fortress two manor building have been making a great record. Captain Colin P. Kelly flew one of the earlier models against the Haruna. Some of the later models have already been over Germany at an altitude so high that they couldn't be touched. Wherever the Flying Fortress has been, it has hit the enemy hard. Colonel, you saw a lot of the Flying Fortress in the Philippines and the Netherlands East Indies. How did it stand up under pressure? Captain Wheeling, here with me today, was under my command when he made the flight that President Roosevelt has told the whole nation about. He was flying a Boeing bomber. That plane brought down four out of 18 fighters and hit three more. When the Japs finally ran out of ammunition, they kept coming in to see just what it was that kept Budapest's ship in the air. They never found out, but the Flying Fortress returned to its base with the crew. Planes badly shot up in combat were soon repaired and returned to action. In other words, the Flying Fortress can take it as well as dish it out. That's right. And while we were operating from the Netherlands East Indies, I saw Boeing bombers in action under the toughest possible circumstances on extended flights, always without fighter protection. Here's another story of those operations. Two of my men, Lieutenant George Gutzel and Captain Alvin Mueller, both are now majors, raided enemy shipping in the Bow Gulf area in the Philippine Islands. They were attacked by enemy aircraft, and one of Gutzel's engines was put out of commission. The other plane then protected him by flying between him and the enemy. As a result of this breakup, one plane was badly damaged by machine gun fire, and the other slightly damaged. 
but out after this attack, both of these planes returned 1,400 miles, nearly all of it over the open ocean with their crews to their base. Well, that sounds mighty good to hear at the, the Boeing plant, Colonel Eubank. Knowing that the Flying Fortress is doing what it is to win this war is going to make us proud to wear those Army and Navy E-pins. Mr. Walker, from my experience in the far Pacific, between December the 8th and March the 1st, I can say that there was just one thing wrong with the whole picture. We didn't have enough. My men made an almost superhuman effort to keep our planes in action, and they did a marvelous job, but there, weren't, there just weren't enough airplanes. That's what the men who fly the planes have asked you men here to correct. That's what you've been doing, and that's why I'm very happy to congratulate you and all the Boeing workers today. Keep up the good work, and you'll make the job a lot easier for us. That was you, Colonel Eugene L. Eubank of the United States Army Air Corps and Roland Walker, one of the we-can't-tell-you-how-many-Boeing workers who today received the highest award, which can be awarded a war production firm. In just a moment, we take you higher into the stratosphere than you've ever been before. A flying fortress is now on a high-altitude test flight. At this moment, it should be up to about 30,000 feet. That's just about six miles straight up in the air. This flying fortress is now actually an invisible plane here above the Boeing plant in Seattle. If we are going to establish contact with this flying fortress, it will be the first time you have ever heard a plane communication from such an altitude. As you listen, bear in mind that the difference in air pressure is so great that the human speech mechanism is extremely hard to control at that altitude. The man in the plane will be putting just about every last ounce of effort into each separate syllable. And the change in atmospheric pressure will also change the pitch of his voice. He will be speaking to you from a height that is symbolic of the Boeing production record. This is CBS calling the Flying Fortress High Altitude Test Flight. CBS calling the Flying Fortress High Altitude Test Flight. Come in, please. This is the Boeing Fortress High Altitude Test Plane flying at about 30,000 feet over Seattle. This is the Boeing... This broadcast has come to you from the Boeing plant in Seattle, Washington through the facilities of station KIRO. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. This is KIRO in Seattle, Washington. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Members of the radio staff at Radio House, the University of Texas, are proud to have in their record library a copy of a broadcast on which Lieutenant Burford of New York State was interviewed. We are glad that we can make a copy of this record for the family of Lieutenant Burford. We would like to express to you the pleasure we knew in our short acquaintance with this fine young man. 
When our scriptwriter visited at navigation school to get material for the broadcast, Lieutenant Burford was assigned to work with the writer in getting the information together. Because he was alert and interesting and had a pleasant and cultivated voice, he was selected as one of the officers to be interviewed. When he flew down from navigation school to spend the day here at the university, several of us met him out at the airport and brought him here to Radio House. He relaxed from routine and had a big time with us that day. We know, and we feel sure that you know, too, that although Lieutenant Burford's span of life was relatively short, his excellent work as an instructor in navigation and the influence of his brilliant mind and charming personality will live on far beyond the duration of this war. we've been saving to present a young man from the Army Air Forces Navigation School at Hondo. He's from New York State and was sent to Texas a week after joining the Army as a buck private about a year ago. And now here's Lieutenant William J. Burford, who made a special flight to Austin just to be on this broadcast. Lieutenant Burford is an element commander in the Navigation School. He teaches bed reckoning and supervises the work of ten other instructors. Now, don't let the word instructor mislead you. He's as young as many of the cadets he teaches. On the other hand, don't let the word young mislead you, because the things he knows about navigation... Pardon me, but if you don't mind, let's get on with the show. Oh, pardon me, Lieutenant Burford, but that's exactly what I'm doing. For a few minutes here, you are the show. But if you insist on being modest about your own accomplishments, we'll talk about navigators and about the things you teach navigators. Now, in the first place, I wish you'd tell us what it takes to make a good navigator. What kind of training and temperament is the best for those going into this vital phase of bomber warfare? So you want to know what it takes to be a navigation officer and a bomber, do you? Well, in the first place, a navigator must be a man who can exercise good judgment at a moment's notice and under any circumstances, whether his plane unexpectedly runs into bad weather or a flock of zeros. And all his calculations must be accurate. There's no time out for mistakes, no matter what happens. The radio gives out, or the drift meter clouds up, or the wind shifts. Still, the navigator must figure out all the problems of time and distance and the course to be flown. Well, I can understand about the radio or the wind shift problem, but what about this drift meter clouding up? What is a drift meter? Drift meter is just what its name implies. We have to measure how much we're drifting off course and take it into account in our navigation. If it clouds up, we just don't know where we're drifting. <laughs> then the navigator must be the type of fellow who can keep calm and cool and... Think clearly, no matter how tight the spot. That's exactly right. And his charts and instruments must be second nature to him. The navigator, if you want to become navigators, have to have some college training to begin with. Oh, you have the wrong idea there. No college training is required for a cadet interested in navigation. After all, it doesn't take a college degree to keep a cool head and exercise good judgment. Of course, mathematics is required for the calculations that must be made. But if a fellow has a high school education and isn't afraid of the math he had to deal with in high school, there's no reason he should be afraid of the math required of him in the navigation school. Well, Lieutenant Burford, there's another thing I'm curious about. 
In their spare time, what do the boys talk about most at navigation school? Spare time, did you say? When a fellow's learning in 15 weeks, we would ordinarily stretch over a year or two. Time must be rationed. And right now, the ration on spare time amounts to the same thing as none at all. Since talk takes time, conversations at navigation school is more than 99% navigation talk. You mean no idle chatter at any time? No, not enough that you can hear it. Even in the barracks, it's shop talk about the training flights and the lectures they've heard that day and the weather. The weather? Now, why wouldn't that come under the classification of idle chatter? I always thought the people who didn't have anything but the weather to talk about were pretty dumb with conversation. Well, I used to think the same thing, but now I feel pretty different about it. Those of us in navigation realize how very important the weather is. The cadets in navigation school take a course in meteorology so they'll be able to diagnose the weather, you might say. Ron Obama, the navigator, is the weatherman. When a crew returns from a flight, it's the navigator who gives the weather report. His log shows what kind of weather has been encountered and what kind can be forecast. Well, are the aerial navigator's forecasts as accurate as weather forecasts from ground reports? More so. After all, the navigator is up there where the weather really is. His forecasts include many more observations than are possible from ground reports. I see. I suppose if it weren't for weather, the navigator wouldn't have much to do. If it weren't for weather, the navigator wouldn't have anything to do. In fact, wind and weather is the reason for navigation. You could do your flying in a mass of stagnant air, that is, with no wind at all, there'd be no need for wrecking a course. If you just set your plane in a heading, leave it there. If it weren't for wind effects in the heading of a plane, I wouldn't have to be teaching anybody anything about dead reckoning. Well, just what does the term dead reckoning mean, Lieutenant Buffer? Well, dead reckoning means determining the course of a ship without reference to visible landmarks below or the stars above. Although there may be a complete overcast above and only an occasional break in the clouds below, a navigator can determine the position of his aircraft at any instant by using the type of instrument navigation we call dead reckoning. To me, that sounds like an accomplishment akin to magic. If it's magic, it's just mathematical magic because the nav navigator accomplishes it with his computer and his logbook and all his instruments, especially the drift meter. I see. Well, in addition to being impressed with all the things you people accomplish in navigation school in such a short time, there's another thing that I can't forget about the men who teach and study there. What's that? Your complete absorption in all you do. You seem to have shut out everything in the world except navigation. And you're the most determined bunch I've run into lately. You act like the war is just over the hill or just around the corner. That's exactly the way we feel. And we know how much depends on getting the bombers to their destination. For it's the bombers that must spot the enemy and blast him off the earth. At navigation school, we've got to be serious. We have to act like it's final exams every day. We don't have time to slow up and take things easy, even for a few minutes. I haven't noticed the Japs or Germans taking any slower, have you? No, no, I haven't. Well, at navigation school, we may not be much closer to the war and actual distance than the rest of you people, but we're a lot closer in the work we do. You know the war is going on, not too many flight hours away, and there's no time to lose. The bombers must get to the right places, and the navigators must take them there. There's no time to lose. You're right. There's no time to lose. And we know that you navigators will get the bombers to the right places on time. We salute you, pathfinders of the sky, charting for a course for bombers to fly. <laughs> <laughs> 